You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is an Airwave Media Podcast. I've got a question for you. What is it that distinguishes a pirate from a privateer? Normally, that would be the authority of the state. Sir Francis Drake had a letter of mark from the Queen. William Kidd had a letter of mark from the King. They were privateers. Most of the buccaneers, though, are a bit murkier. Henry Morgan had a letter of mark from the governor, who didn't exactly have royal authority to hand those out. Same with all of the French pirates and all of the pirates on the Pacific adventures. But what if a privateer had state authority from a state that was not recognized by anyone else in the world? A revolutionary state, say. Now, were their revolutions successful, they would be validated by the successful implementation of a new government. But if that revolution was not, are they anything more than pirates? I ask this question because I've recorded a new audiobook. No Limits to Their Sway by Edgardo Perez Morales is a history of the privateers of revolutionary Cartagena. This is a coalition of French, American, Haitian, and Spanish-American privateers who all sailed for a revolutionary state in the 1810s. And this story might be a bit of a spoiler for the Pirate History Podcast. I intend eventually to end this story in the Age of Revolutions, the American-French-Napoleonic Revolutions, and this is one of those stories. The book focuses on the ship Bologna, under the French privateer Louis-Michel Ari, and it follows that ship and many of the others through the political revolutions in northern South America. It's a fascinating read that deals with the social and political implications of privateering in that era. If it's something you think you'd be interested in listening to, you can always find it at audible.com or on Amazon, or you can go through our website, piratehistorypodcast.com, where we have a link where you can listen to a sample, and if you want, you can pick up a copy of No Limits to Their Sway by Edgardo Perez Morales. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Gista Guy, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. 
Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Last time, we discussed the crew that signed up to sail under Captain William Kidd on board the Adventure Galley. Naturally, that crew is going to be important for the voyage to come, but before they set sail, I want to talk a bit about New York. Specifically, about the political intrigues that may have been taking place there after William Kidd returned. New York in 1696 was a boomtown. You know, Boston was the imminent port city in America, and would remain so for some years to come. At this point, New York still wasn't even number two. That distinction goes to Philadelphia. New York had been four or five, but under the stewardship of Governor Benjamin Fletcher, they moved up to number three, in terms of pure cargo shipped out and profit brought in. That was thanks to some of the governor's more progressive policies, including piracy. This is episode 241. Half drunk, half sober, or half asleep. We should all be familiar with the industry that made New York a boomtown in the 1690s and how it did so. But just in case you don't obsessively remember all of the minutiae of Red Sea's piracy, I'll throw out a brief overview here. The slave trade in the English Empire, soon to be the British Empire, well, it was conducted under a crown monopoly called the Royal Africa Company. All slave trading in English territory was done by this company. It was legally obligated to be conducted by this company. And it wasn't just the slave trade, but all of the African trades. Ebony, ivory, gold and diamonds, and all of the goods that England could extract from their African territories. These latter categories would become more important in the 18th and 19th centuries, but... They were already active here at the end of the 17th century. Slavery, though, was the real game. Everything in the empire, everything in the entire colonial world revolved around slave labor. And anyone who thought that they could circumvent this monopoly on the slave trade was an enemy of the state, and usually they were hunted down and unceremoniously killed on the fringes of the empire. But a group of merchants and politicians in New York thought that they could circumvent the company anyway. They were led by an eminently successful merchant named Frederick Phillips. And Phillips was rich, like he owned Westchester rich. He was one of the men who helped build the Trinity Church and a bunch of other churches in the region. He has descendants that sat on the Continental Congress and the Supreme Court. He was a big deal. Frederick Phillips and a bunch of his friends, including perhaps even a New York heiress and wealthy widower named Sarah Bradley, all bought into a slaving enterprise, an independent slaving enterprise. A business deal that would provide slave labor for New York, Carolina, and Nassau. And they could do so at a much better price than the Royal Africa Company was offering. Benjamin Fletcher organized this enterprise, and he sent Adam Baldridge to St. Mary's off the coast of Madagascar. There, Adam Baldridge built a trading post for interlopers, smugglers, and pirates, dealing in all the goods of Africa, the Middle East, and India. They would rob the Mughal Empire, which we have talked about extensively, but also 
any unwary East India Company ships from the English, French, or Dutch versions of the East India Company they would sack and steal from. But the one element of this illicit triangle trade that we haven't really discussed yet is what they did with all of those goods. When you've got pirates robbing treasure fleets, you wind up with warehouses filled with illegally obtained casks of indigo and sacks of nutmeg, bales of saffron, bolts of silk, chests of gold, just all the riches of the East. And sure, the folks living in the city and the rest of the American colonies would buy up some, but it was a limited market, especially for such exotic goods. Instead, merchants like Phillips, who had armadas of trade vessels, well, they loaded their ships up with all of that contraband cargo. They had their agents fill out falsified logs and trade records, and they sent those ships off to Europe. And I'm trying to figure out how to break this next bit down simply, and I came up with this. It's complicated, but try and keep up. Germans did not like Italians. The more complicated version goes something like this. There were a bunch of German city-states and principalities and small dukedoms that were incorporated parts of the Holy Roman Empire. They didn't really want to be part of the empire, but the idea of a German state hadn't really taken shape yet. These Germans chafed under the yoke of imperial trade restrictions. Now this is an old contention, it's something that could be traced back to the Reformation, or really even before. But there was definitely a religious divide in Germany. What would become known as Prussia, at the time just a dukedom that would go on to become Imperial Germany, well, they were mostly Protestant, as were a bunch of those other principalities and city-states. And this Protestant Germany was often at odds with the Catholic Habsburgs in Austria and in Italy. But Prussian gentry or merchants or anyone who happened to be in the market for, you know, pepper, they had to trade with Venetian merchant clans for pepper that, thanks to an intricate and frankly unfair tax structure within the empire, was way overpriced. Most Prussians and other German Protestants saw this, not entirely unjustly, as a religious tax that they were forced to pay due to their religion and the empire's unfair policies. They resented it. So when a small fleet of merchant vessels from some far-away English colonies in the Americas, when they showed up with trade goods that were being sold for way under current Prussian market value, they were snapped up almost immediately. The legality here was no concern for these Germans, you know, spices and silks for really, really cheap, that also allowed the Germans to poke the Catholics in the eyes, well, thank you, yes, please. All of these goods went so fast that it was immediately clear that the New York smuggling ring had a big market in the bag. There was something of a New York to Hamburg pipeline that really made New York that boomtown we see in the 1690s. Because it wasn't just Prussia and a few German city-states, they were supplying the whole of Protestant Northern Europe. You know, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, anywhere that was being charged a serious premium by the Mediterranean merchant class, well, they were happy to trade. 
And this wasn't, you know, a secret. When sacks of cheap nutmeg show up in Oslo, people tend to notice. But all of this really makes me wonder. When William Kidd traveled to London and found himself eventually backed by the biggest Whig politicians the English government had to offer, how much did those MPs and ministers confide in William Kidd? How much was he able to pick up on his own? How much did he know? I doubt they would have let this colonial Scotsman in on their most intimate secrets, but they were putting a lot of eggs in his basket. One imagines they would have informed him of at least a little bit of what was coming. This international crime ring of interlopers and pirates and smugglers that were building their own triangle trade between Madagascar, New York, and Hamburg, they were not long for this world. Their governor, Benjamin Fletcher, had already been replaced by royal decree. He just didn't know it yet. I imagine that William Kidd, unless he was a very gullible fool, which... Maybe, but I imagine he was privy to some of it. Now, if I were an honorless cur and I discovered a piece of news as world-shaking as all this, I might just keep my lips shut about it. I might not tell my good friend and political patron, Governor Benjamin Fletcher. I might not make a peep at all of the parties that were thrown by Frederick Phillips and his friends, but I would, without question, mention it to my beautiful young wife. I would let her know that the winds of change were about to hit New York City. Because the business was really Sarah Bradley's business. Her husband was charming and persuasive and a ship's captain, but it was her money. Now, with his new political connections in London and his wife's capable hands at the helm, the Kidd family, if William Kidd kept his mouth shut, were well positioned to forge an empire in New York City at the turn of the 18th century. In the last weeks of August and into early September 1696, the adventure galley was being readied for a long voyage. Water barrels were being tested for leaks and filled with drinking water. There were workmen loading salted meats, mostly pork, salted pork. and hardtack. They were bringing on rum and beer and tea and even raw flour and sugar. And there were vegetables. It was mostly root vegetables like potatoes and onions and carrots, but there would have been a few crates of apples and even some fresh, more perishable vegetables for the first few days. During this period, most of the men would have been living on board and many of them received a small signing bonus. These bonuses were intended for the men to procure whatever necessaries they might require on the voyage. If they needed personal stores of food or medicine or clothes or any kind of supplies they would need. And some of those men did spend those bonuses on goods of this nature. See, these bonuses were usually fronted by one of the investors of the voyage, often a person who was invested in this particular part of the venture. Because whoever fronted these bonuses to the crew would always let them know that he had a shop that was offering very good discounts for men of the adventure galley. Which is all told a good scheme, or, you know, a good business practice. 
Give the men some money, and then let them come in and spend that money on goods that you are selling. These merchants made money, but many of the men did not spend their bonuses on supplies. Instead, in the weeks leading up to Adventure Galley's departure, many of the men enjoyed visitors. In the Navy and on most large merchant ships, these visitations were officially accepted as visits from their wives. It was a concession made by those in positions of power, but they knew it wasn't really their wives. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. I doubt that the men in charge of Adventure Galley, though, even cared enough to pretend. These were prostitutes. You know, one man might enjoy a visit from his wife one night, and then another man might enjoy a visit from the same wife the next night. And there are actually some accounts of men complaining about how difficult it could be to get around in the cabin in the nights just before departure. There would be women's legs hanging out of the hammocks on either side, and you'd have to navigate a way through to get to your own hammock, probably with a visitor of your own. One eyewitness account from a different ship, but from this same era, would write, quote, You would have wondered to see here a man and a woman creep into a hammock, the woman's legs to the hams hanging over the sides. Another couple on a chest, others kissing and clipping, half drunk, half sober, or half asleep. End quote. It was a hazardous environment. But soon enough, most of the men's purses were empty, and Adventure Galley was just about ready to sail. In The Pirate Hunter, Richard Zacks writes of Captain Kidd's last days in New York, quote, On September 1, Kidd decided that it was time to live on board the Adventure, to oversee final preparations. He had to leave his cushy confines on Pearl Street. Kid's eyes recorded the walls of his home. He sat one last time in the living room chairs. He ate one last meal in the dining room. 
he joined his young wife in the bedroom one last time. The farewell must have been difficult, because subtle clues, such as offhand comments from neighbors and friends, point to William loving Sarah very much, and Sarah returning that love. They knew that they would not see each other for at least a year and a half, if ever again. End quote. An ominous passage, but there is one line there that I would like to clarify and expand upon. It is certainly true that there was one night that was William Kidd's last night with his wife in their bed, but that isn't to say that Sarah Bradley did not spend some nights on board the ship. This is something you see a lot of when the men are actually married, especially among the officer corps, on navy ships and the like. Your husband is sleeping all alone on a ship that is literally crawling with other men's wives. Wives who had only been paid for a limited time, not for the whole night, who were liable to drum up more business while they were there. Many actual wives found it prudent not to leave their husbands alone in such circumstances. But beyond that, it was a night away from home. The kids are with the nanny. You're out on a ship rocking back and forth, and if he has his own little cabin lit by candlelight, well, it's a romantic evening. But finally, the adventure galley was ready to depart. That morning the dock was already crowded. Governor Fletcher was there to see Kid off, as was Sarah Bradley and all of the other wives of men on board, not to mention the children and any other family members who may be in town. And then there was the magistrate in full robes and a powdered wig who was there to read out loud the letter of Mark from King William to William Kidd. The captain of HMS Richmond, a Royal Navy man-of-war stationed in New York Harbor, was also there to add his own gravitas to the occasion. The men of the adventure galley lined the rail to see this assembled crowd. One young sailor on board, a Joseph Palmer, would later say that he stood at the forecastle better to see the crowd that had assembled for them. The captain, in a brilliant hat, stood on the quarter-deck, that raised deck to the aft of the ship, not so he could better see the crowd, but so that the crowd could better see him. While that magistrate read out his letter of mark, he smiled and he waved at the crowd. Once the recitation was over, William Kidd gave an order. William Moore, a pirate who was serving on Adventure Galley as chief gunner, parroted the order. All of the big guns had been loaded with powder but no shot, and they fired off a salute to New York, to England, and to God. Fort William, guarding the harbor, returned the salute, as did HMS Richmond. And with that the adventure galley opened up her sails and moved out of New York Harbor into the open Atlantic. Their plan was simple. Adventure galley would make for South Africa, where the English had a settlement. There they could restock and resupply at a port that was sure to welcome them in freely. See, that letter of Mark had very specific instructions on how Englishmen were to treat Captain William Kidd and the adventure galley, they were supposed to aid him in any way possible or necessary. That was the king's decree. 
From South Africa, the adventure galley would round the Cape and make for Madagascar, at which point they would be in the hands of John Brown, the pilot and a longtime pirate. Brown knew all of the haunts and bays and anchorages that were favored by pirates in the region. But you don't head straight from New York to South Africa. When you're at the mercy of the winds, that's just impossible. The first stop was back in Europe, or just off the coast of Europe, at the Madeira Islands. That's an archipelago that belonged to Portugal at the time, and today it is part of the Portuguese Republic, but they call it an autonomous region. This chain of islands was among the first lands discovered in the Age of Discovery. It was home to some of the first sugar plantations that any Europeans built in the world, which also gives it the unhappy distinction of being the first European colony to implement slave labor. By which, naturally, I mean a European colony in the Age of Discovery utilizing African slave labor. Obviously, there were Roman colonies with slave labor, and it goes back farther than that, but you get what I'm saying. By 1696, though, the Madeira were no longer known for their sugar. Most Portuguese sugar production had been moved to Brazil. Instead, they were known for their very fine wine. It's the kind of wine that deserves a distinction. You know, you'll hear... Francis Drake or William Dampier say, oh, we got a cask of rum and a case of wine and even a few bottles of Madeira. I've had it once, I think, and if I recall, it was yeah, pretty good. But that wine was the reason most ships stopped at the Madeira. That's why Adventure Galley was there. They had their ale and they had their rum, but they wanted some wine. This archipelago, though, is a good geographical point to stop today. They're about to move on to Africa, so it seems like a good point to put a period. Next time, Captain Kidd makes his way down the coast of Africa to the Cape of Good Hope. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended the show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, you all make this possible. Thank you. We are a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fantastic shows, like the Explorers Podcast, a show with similar nautical history themes, you can find them at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Raise your glass in the air